0: I want to share with you an excerpt from the book, The Life We've Always Wanted. John Northberg, the writer, writes the following. Once in a while, I take my kids to the shrine of the golden arches. Anybody wants to guess? There they see an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy. A combination that someone, in a moment of marketing genius, gave it the name of Happy Meal. And frankly, they don't care much about the food. They're after the prize, which is a cheap little thing. But it's a Happy Meal. So then when you buy it, you're not just buying chicken McNuggets and french fries and a little toy, you're actually buying happiness. Now, I try to buy off my children sometimes. We'll go into McDonald's, and I said, okay, get whatever food you want. I'll give you a dollar or a quarter or something, and then you can go out and buy a little trinket that's more valuable than the price you'll get there, and both of us will come out ahead financially. But that argument doesn't cut much weight with them at all, and the chant goes up. We want a happy meal. We want a happy meal. And all around the restaurant, heads turn, necks craned to see the cheapskate, tight-fisted parent who denies children the meal of great joy. And so I buy my children the happy meal. Each one gets his or her own, and they are happy for about a minute and a half. You know what the problem is with the happy meal? The happy wears off. It doesn't last. In a couple years, the children don't come back and say, remember that Happy Meal that I got? What great joy I found there. I knew if I just could get that, I would be a contented person. And I am, dead thanks to your wisdom and your generosity. There will be no need for therapy for me. Now, you would think that kids, being fairly bright folks, would eventually catch on to this deal. You think that at some time a child will say to himself or herself, you know, I keep getting these Happy Meals and they don't give me lasting contentment, lasting happiness, so I'm not going to be a sucker anymore. I'm not going to put myself through this again. I'm not going to set myself up for disappointment and frustration and discontentment one more time. But it never happens. They keep buying the Happy Meals. And you know who... The Happy Meals bring true happiness? (laughs) McDonald's. Of course, only a kid could be so naive as to think that contentment could be acquired through some external purchase, right? Well, the truth about human beings is that when they grow up, they don't get any smarter. The Happy Meals just get more expensive. So we're gonna talk about the issue of discontentment and contentment and gratitude. This goes back way, way in biblical times. Back in the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament stories, you know that the people of Israel went through some tough times. There were some tough times there, but God was with them, and there are times that they were thankful, but most of the time, you read over and over again, they keep complaining. For example, Egypt, for 400 years they had been slaves. For 400 years they dreamed of freedom and then God intervened. Not that under the radar kind of intervention. This is pulling all the stops. God went all out with this freedom from Egypt. There were 10 plagues, there was fire, there were big waves, there were deaths, there were bugs, there were frogs. And finally, the people were free. And they came out singing and dancing and happy until they got to the Red Sea. And at that point, they could have said, God, you deliver us. We trust you. Or they could have complained. And we know what they chose. They came to Moses and said, why did you take us out of Egypt? We could have died there. Why do we have to die here, either drowning or the army that is right behind us? And then God intervened again. And the waters parted just with enough time for more than a million people to walk across into their freedom. And it closed just in time to assure that those million people had safety. And they were happy again. And they sang and they danced and they praised God until they came to the land of Mara. If you read the story in the Mara, it was a desert and they needed water and they ran out of water. They could have remembered what the amazing things that God did with water in the Red Sea, but they complained. The Bible records their complaining. Moses, why did you bring us here to die of thirst? And God intervened again, and water came forth from the rock, and they were provided the water that they needed. And then they complained again, because they are running out of food, and God sent manna. Now, manna is an I just have to say this, as a woman, well, this is stereotyping, because there are men that love cooking, but um, manna was an amazing type of food. Knowing that the human being, appreciates a diversity of flavors and palate and different foods, he gave manna. Manna was one of the most versatile type of food that there was. The Bible says that manna, in Exodus 16, that manna can be eaten raw, it can be baked, it can be boiled, so that food would not be boring for the next four years. So all the Jewish chefs were having a heyday. So the new bestseller was 150 delicious recipes to turn your manna into a scrumptious meal. There were baked manna, boiled manna, barbecue manna, manna burgers, manna chips, manna salad, manna cotti, and fried manna. (laughs) With all this manna, you'd think they would be forever grateful, right? No, they complain again. Manna stopped being a happy meal. And the chant went went up, we want the Happy Meal. So God, and they were complaining about that they didn't have meat. They were wishing to go back to Egypt so they could have the onions and the cucumbers, forgetting the price of slavery that was attached to that. So God sent them quail McNuggets. But the Happy on the Happy Meal also wore off, and they complained again. Now, discontentment and ungratefulness has been a problem among human beings ever since the beginning of time, a problem that seems to intensify as the countries get more and more developed. I grew up in Africa. I saw poverty, and I saw thankfulness, and I I saw happiness. I live in a country where there's plenty. And I see happiness, but I see discontentment in very big proportions, unfortunately. Compared to the third world countries, the U.S. is healthier, cleaner, richer, and some aspects even smarter. But our level of dissatisfaction is higher than ever. We live in a society where people perceive themselves to be entitled to having all their desires fulfilled. So we take this as part of our birthright, So we feel victims when we don't get what we want. So how do the people of the Downers Grove Church rate on this level of discontentment? Well, let's do a little survey here. Let's take an inventory. I'm going to read six statements to you. Don't raise your hands. But if you say yes to any of them in your heart, then yes, you too suffer from this sickness and illness of discontentment. So number one, I find myself bored and dissatisfied in my work. I expect it not to pay the bills, but to give me a sense of identity and significance. Number two, I am disappointed in my relationships. My friends, spouse, or children don't meet all my emotional needs. Number three, let me tell you, these statements are come from a psychologist, where they have come up with some statements that can gauge well. Number three, rather than enjoying the moment, I become preoccupied whether or not I'm truly happy and whether I should be doing something else. Number four, I try to find relief from discontentment through alcohol, excessive TV, watching Facebook, eating, shopping, internet, surfing. Number five, I lose generosity of spirit. My initial response to events is to be cynical or even hostile. Number six, I grow resentful or envious of those whose circumstances seem more pleasant than mine. How are we doing? How did you gauge on your level of discontentment? If you did say yes to one or two or more, you're not alone. Discontentment is like a downward pull that we all suffer in a world of sin. It takes intentional living and God's power to live a life of contentment. It just does not happen. You're not born content. You're not a content child all the time. And you don't turn into an individual that is content no matter what. It takes intentional living and God's power. So today I want to give you the antidote to a life of discontentment, which is gratitude the attitude of gratitude. When the level of gratitude goes up, discontent automatically goes down. However, a life of gratitude is a learned skill. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul worded. So let's put up the next slide. Philippians 4, 12, 13. I have learned the secret of being content, in facing situations where I have a lot and where I have very little. I have learned that I can face any of them through my relationship with Christ, who gives me strength. I have learned Paul was not always a happy, contented person, but through the up and downs of his life with Christ. When he's writing these words, he's writing from prison. He's not on a cruise, not having the time of his life. He's actually at one of his down and lowest moments, and yet does not bother him because he has learned. And when you learn something, for those that know instruments and people that play the instrument, you don't wake up one day and you play the piano. You practice, and you practice, and you practice, and you practice, even when you don't feel like it. And then eventually, it starts becoming second nature. And learning to be content, learning to be grateful, is a learned skill that you practice, you practice even when you don't feel like it. So today, I want to give you just three steps that hopefully you'll remember that you can practice all week this attitude of gratitude. But before I do those three steps, I want to do a few disclaimers. I want to tell you what, contentment is not. And then I'll define what contentment is. So this is important, knowing the life of the teaching of Paul and the life of Jesus, here's what contentment is not. Contentment is not accepting the status quo throughout the world. Contentment is not being complacent. Martin Luther King, for example, was not called to be content about segregation or racial injustice. We are not, to be call, we're not called to be content in face of poverty, injustice, or evil in the world. Contentment is not a call to apathy or resignation. To resign to destructive situations, destructive relationships, or destructive habits is not a sign of contentment. To resign and be apathetic when God calls you into action, that does not qualify as contentment. So now what is contentment? So I'm going to define contentment actually with a question. So who is more content? A person with $7 million or a person with seven children? Well, let's just show a hand. The person that votes for A, please raise your hand. And the person for B, please raise your hand. And the others, I don't care. Um, And the correct answer is B. Because according to the experts, contentment is defined as wanting no more. (laughs) (laughs) When you're content, you want no more. (laughs) Got the right answer right there. That's what the experts say. Contentment is a freedom from that itch that we all have that says... I got to have it. I cannot live until I get what I don't have. It's an ability to live fully in the moment. It's a simple and a focused life. So now here I want to tell you about these three steps. We're going to go through them um, rather quickly. And I, want have, I have a few illustrations so you can understand. Step number one, be grateful for imperfect gifts. For all of you that are perfectionists, if you're starting to fidget a little bit on your seat, let me explain what I mean by this. We're all familiar with outlet stores, right? Outlet stores have come a long ways. Back in the days, and I'm dating myself here, back in the days when outlet stores became popular, there were stores where... Items from other stores that have been returned, or they had little flaws or little imperfections, irregularities, they would send all those items to these outlet stores. And there they would be brand names, I mean, high quality items with the prices just slashed in, you know, like a fraction of what they were. And they used to, they don't do that anymore, but they used to put little stickers on a sweater or a piece of furniture or a piece of clothing that said slightly irregular. Anybody remembers that? Or slightly imperfect. And so people would go to these outlet stores and come away elated, bragging to all their friends about this brand item that they just got for almost nothing. And people would say, well, what about the slightly imperfect part? Oh, you can hardly see you can ho- and they will be so excited, and they will go back and buy all this. Well, back in the Garden of Eden, our planet got a gigantic sticker that says "Slightly imperfect." When sin came into our planet Earth and to humankind, we all got a sticker that says "slightly imperfect." You and I have a sticker that says slightly imperfect. Your spouse has a sticker that says slightly imperfect. Your children have a sticker. Your boss has a sticker, your job, your vacation, your car. Everything on this side of the sun has a sticker that says, slightly imperfect. So if you would hold your gratitude in hopes of receiving the perfect spouse, the perfect child, the perfect body, the perfect boss, the perfect birthday present, the perfect career, you will never be grateful at all. Because on this side of the sun, imperfect gifts, that's all we're gonna get. So let's begin to be grateful for the imperfect gifts in your life, for the imperfect people in your lives, for the imperfect situations. One day it will change. But until then, let's be grateful for imperfect gifts. So that's the first one. Just remember when you come to an imperfect situation, like, there we go. That person has a sticker. And then look at your sticker, too. We all have a sticker, Imperfect gift. I will be thankful for that. Number two, consider a change of perspective on things and events. So perspective are those invisible lenses through which we see the world, we see people, and events. So let me give you a couple stories to illustrate that. Harriet Lerner is a psychologist who grew up in New York. And after college, she moved to Kansas. Now in her 50s, she goes back to her hometown for a conference which she met up with two friends. So she writes the following incident that happened. While attending a conference in New York one spring, I rode by bus to the Metropolitan Museum with two colleagues. I had lost my familiarity with the city and my companions, Celia and Janet, felt like strangers in a strange land. Perhaps as a result of our big city anxiety, we reminded the bus driver once too often to announce our stop. In a sudden and unexpected fury, he launched into a verbal attack that turned heads throughout the crowded bus. The three of us just stood there in stunned silence. Later on, over coffee, we share our personal reactions to this incident. Celia felt mildly depressed. She was reminded of her ex abusive husband, and this particular week was the anniversary of their divorce. Janet reacted with anger, but then she made a joke of it. That was Janet. My own reaction was nostalgia. I had been feeling home for New York, homesick. I had been feeling homesick for New York, and I almost welcomed that contrast to the Midwestern politeness that I had become accustomed to. It was a New York City happening that I could take back to Kansas. Suppose we reflect briefly on this incident. We might all agree that the bus driver behaved badly. But how did one incident cause three different reactions and three different trains of thought and three different set of emotions? And that's what I call perspective. Those lenses that are formed by our family background, by our beliefs, by our experiences, we see the world through those. Somebody with different lenses will react totally different. So if you are not content, if you're having a hard time with life, maybe it's time to ask God and say, God, change my lenses. We're all born with some lenses. But God promised that I'm here to make you new. I make everything new. And that means starting to see the world the way God sees the world. Starting to see people the way he sees people. And that's a process, it's a learned skill. I have one more story to help you see perspective. So, a girl in college wrote to her parents. Dear mom and dad, I have so much to tell you. Because of the student riots on campus, This is not an Adventist college. I was injured and had to go to the hospital. While I was there I fell in love with a man who came to mop the floor of my room. We have moved in together and I have dropped out of school when I found out that I was pregnant. Then he got fired because of his drinking so we're going to move to Alaska where we might get married after the the birth of the baby. It was sign your loving daughter. P.S. None of that really happened. But I did fill my chemistry class, and I just wanted you to keep in perspective. (laughs) No matter how bad things are, they could be worse, right? They could be worse. So this week, to help you keep a proper perspective, I want you to do the following. Each time you come into a situation, you're going to tell yourself it could be worse. So we're going to do a little practice here. So you're gonna say, with me at count of three, it could be worse, with passion, okay? One, two, three. It could be worse. Well, you're kind of lacking on the passion side, but. So let's do a little, uh, so actually I'm gonna give you very specific situations, and after that situation you're going to say with me, it could be worse. So today, when you live here and you go to the parking lot, you're going to be tempted to say, If I had somebody else's car that I'm looking at right here, then I would be content. I'm tired of my car. I wish I had that car with that color and that model. But today, at least today, you're not going to think that at all because when you get into your car, you're going to say to yourself with great passion, Thank you. And when you drive to where you live, apartment or your house. You might be tempted to think, I'm so tired of living here. If I had a bigger place, a nicer kitchen, a more expensive place, maybe different pain, then I would be content. But today you're not going to do that because you came to church and you heard the sermon. And when you walk through that door, you're going to say to yourself with great passion, it, could it be your Tomorrow morning, when you're a cop and you roll over and you look at your spouse, you're going to say... That is one exception to the rule. Don't say it. You're going to say, you're lovely, dear. All right. So be grateful for imperfect gifts. Consider a change of perspective if you're really having a hard time with contentment. And the third one is express gratitude openly and often. We do that with our kids ever since they're little. Somebody gives them something, you go, what do you say? (laughs) Do you wait until your child feels grateful? No, we want our children to be grateful no matter how they feel. To say often thank you, quite often thank you because it will teach them, they will learn the skill of being grateful. So I wanna share one more story about the power of saying thank you. It's called this Old, uh, the, this Old House. It's written by Melody Beattie in her book, Codependent No More. She says David and I bought our first house, the yellow turn of the century three story on Pleasant Avenue in South Minneapolis. It wasn't what I had hoped for, but it was the only house we could afford. The home we bought had been used as a rental property for 15 years, had been staying vacant for a year, and it was three stories of broken windows and broken wood. Some rooms had 10 layers of wallpaper on the walls. Some walls had holes straight through to the outdoors. The floors were covered with a bright orange carpeting with large stains on it. And we didn't have any money or skills to fix it. We could not afford to furnish it. We had three stories of a dilapidated home with a kitchen table, two chairs, a high chair, a bed, a crib, and two dresses, one of which had broken drawers. About two weeks after we moved in, a friend stopped by. We stood talking on what would have been the lawn if grass had been growing there. My friend kept repeating how lucky I was and how nice it was to own your own home. But I didn't feel lucky. I didn't know anyone else who owned a home like this. I didn't talk much about how I felt, but each night while my husband and daughter slept, I tiptoed down to the living room. I sat on the floor and just cried. This became a ritual. When everyone was asleep, I sat in the middle of the floor thinking about everything I hated about this house, crying and feeling hopeless. I did this for months. However legitimate my reaction may have been, it changed nothing. A few times in desperation, I tried to fix the house, but nothing worked. The day before Thanksgiving, I attempted to put some paint on the living and dining room walls, but the layers of wall people start to peel off the moment I put paint on them. Another time, I ordered expensive wallpaper, trying to have faith that I would have the money to pay for it when it came, and it didn't. Then one evening, when I was sitting in the middle of the floor going through my wailing ritual, a thought occurred to me. Why not try gratitude? At first I dismissed the idea. Gratitude was absurd. What could I possibly be grateful for? How could I, and why should I? Then I decided to try anyway. I had nothing to lose, and even I was getting sick of my own whining. I still wasn't certain what to be grateful for, so I decided to be grateful for everything. I didn't feel grateful. I willed it. I forced it. I faked it. I pretended. I made myself think grateful thoughts. When I thought about the layers of the peeling wallpaper, I thanked God. I thanked God for each thing I hated about this house. I thanked him for giving it to me. I thanked him that I was there. I even thanked him that I hated it. Each time I had a negative thought about the house, I countered it with a grateful one. Maybe this wasn't as logical a reaction as negativity, but it turned out to be more effective. After I practiced gratitude for about three or four months, things started to change. I stopped sitting in the middle of the floor and crying, and I started to accept the house, as it was. I started taking care of the house as though it were my dream home. I acted as if it was my dream home. I kept it clean, orderly, and as nice as could be. Then I started thinking, if I took all the old wallpaper off first, maybe the paint would stay on. I pulled up some of the orange carpeting and discovered solid oak floors throughout the house. I went through some of boxes I had packed away when I found antique lace curtains that fit the windows. I found a community action garden that sewed decent wallpaper for a dollar a roll. I learned about textured paint, the kind of paint that fills and covers old, cracked walls. I decided if I didn't know how to do the work, I could learn. My mother volunteered to help me with wallpapering. Everything I needed started coming to me. Nine months later, I had a beautiful home. Solid oak floors glistened throughout the house. Country print wallpaper and textured white walls contrasted beautifully with the dark scrolled woodwork that decorated each room. Whenever I encountered a problem, like half of the cupboard doors were missing, or I didn't have any money to hire a carpenter for the kitchen, I willed gratitude. And pretty soon a solution appeared where tear all the doors off and have an open country kitchen pantry. I worked, and I worked, and I had three floors of a beautiful home. It wasn't perfect, but it was mine, and I was happy to be there, proud to be there, truly grateful to be there. Soon, the house filled up with furniture too. I learned to selectively collect pieces here and there for $5, $10, covered the flaws with lacy doilies and refinished. I learned how to make something out of almost nothing instead of making nothing out of something. I fell in love with my home, and I discovered the transformative power of gratitude. So this week, as we go forth from here, you will encounter imperfect situations. You will encounter difficult people. You will struggle with your own emotions. But at least this week, remember, imperfect gifts with, slightly, with stickers of slightly imperfect, that's what we have in this planet. So be grateful for the slightly imperfect people and events and gifts in your life. Remember that if things are really tough, we have a God. Even Paul said, I have learned that I can handle all things through Christ who gives me strength. So ask Him for a change of perspective and for the strength to face whatever is going to come to you this week. And then finally, express gratitude open and often. Openly and often. Every situation you encounter, may you face it with a thank you. And things will get really tough in your heart. Remember to say, it could be worse. (laughs) So as we go forward, I'm going to read some statements. And then at the end, wait until I get to the end because it's obvious what the answer is. And we'll say together with great passion the answer to these questions. So here they are. Even before I read that, I want to say that it's about past 12 o'clock, from the moment you got up until now, you have received so many gifts. You had running water. You had breakfast, or at least you had availability for breakfast. You had transportation. And you have the freedom to worship here. And I could mention many, many, many more gifts. And it's good sometimes to remember those when life gets a little bit rough. So when God opens your eyes tomorrow morning and you are again given the, fit, the, the, wake, the, the gift of a wakeful life, what do you say? When you look in the face of somebody who knows and loves you and smiles at you, what do you say? When you eat something that tastes really good and you're so glad for the gift of taste, what do you say? When you tell your hand to do something and your hand does it, and you marvel at the mechanism of the human body, what do you say? When you read a book and your mind is able to contemplate and what you're reading and think, what do you say? When you go to work and you decide to do something and you're able to do it, what do you say? When you look out the window and see that things are green and growing and it's warm, what do you say? When you open your Bible and you learn about the amazing love that comes from God and what he did for you, what do you say? And all together, with great patience, we say, thank you. So may these be the words that you will say more and more often as we go into this week.